When you think about innovation and innovators, their mantra is more fail early, fail often. So I was like, so how do we combine that with our failure is not an option mindset? And so we really had to be very deliberate about saying, in some cases, it's okay to fail early and fail often, as long as it's not something that is directly affecting the health of the astronauts or the spacecraft. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we unravel complex business trends and challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And the question we're asking today is, where should we all be turning to learn the ultimate risk management in an environment where we all need to be a little more risk conscious? Right? It's easy to look at companies' recent missteps and say, well, I would have seen that coming. But could anyone have foreseen what the last few years have actually brought us? Totally. None of us have a crystal ball. But what I can say as a CEO myself is that risk mitigation is critical right now. And the move fast and break things era is definitely under critique. But while failing fast and failing often has its place, this approach has to be balanced with a broader appreciation of stakeholder capitalism. And it's especially true when failure is not an option, particularly when life is on the line. Well, that's pretty dramatic. So who better to advise on managing risk than a real-life astronaut? Hence, we are bringing you the one and only Dr. Ellen Ochoa. (laughs) Exactly. Someone whose business decisions actually have life or death consequences? And how do you maintain innovation and speed when managing a risk that heavy? There are a lot of leadership applications from her work, and I'm excited to dig in on not just how she managed risk as a leader at NASA, but also what business leaders today need to watch out for. I can't wait for this one. And I guess I'll see you in outer space, Linz. Blast off. So we are so excited to have Dr. Ellen Ochoa with us today. She is the first Latina to travel to space, the former director of NASA's Johnson Space Center, a board member at Mutual of America and Service Corporation International. And I could go on and on about all of your accolades. So thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we're thrilled to have you on. I would love to hear about your journey and your lessons for leaders who are looking for smarter ways to manage risk. What better person to talk to about risk? than an astronaut. But first, I have to ask the question that it's been on my mind since I read that you would be joining us. What is it like to lift off and go into space? (laughs) Well, it's definitely very exciting. So I flew four times on the space shuttle. So that's my launch experience. And it only takes eight and a half minutes to go from the launch pad to traveling at 17,500 miles per hour where the engines cut off. It feels like you really get off the launch pad fast and you build up to about three Gs. So it feels like somebody who weighs three times as much as you is sitting on your chest. So you can still breathe and all of that, but it's certainly quite noticeable. And then when the solid rocket boosters separate, you go back to almost 1G or just a little bit above. And I remember on my first flight thinking that it felt like we'd stopped, Mm -hmm. but it's just that the vibration and then the higher acceleration had gone away. And that almost was a lot scarier than when you're really feeling the acceleration because you think, okay, that can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) 
But, you know, I was up on the flight deck. I could look at the instruments till we were obviously still going. And so that only lasted a few seconds. And then you build back up to 3Gs again. And then there's a very abrupt transition uh, when the engines cut off and you're in 0G. It's an exciting ride. It sounds just like launching a startup. Very similar, (laughs) especially the weight on your chest. I I really relate to that. Well, you've blazed so many trails as a scientist, an astronaut, and as a leader, but you've also been involved in situations where mistakes can literally put lives on the line, including your own. So what would you say is your approach to risk? Are you a risk taker, a risk avoider? Where do you fall on the great scale of risk? So... I don't know that I had ever really asked myself that question. I just knew I wanted to try to be an astronaut. And of course, realizing that there is risk coming with it. In fact, Mm -hmm. less than a year after I sent in my initial application is when the Challenger happened. And, you know, of course, that was shocking to the nation. So there's no way you're on the adverse side of risk. (laughs) It didn't ever occur to me to change my mind or to say anything like, oh, now I don't want to be an astronaut anymore. To me, you do have to look at the benefits versus the risk. And to me, the benefits were both to be part of NASA's mission, bringing benefits to humanity, you know, learning more about science, leadership, inspiration, and maybe even a little more personally, the chance to be part of a team, yeah, working on exploration and discovery. And of course, the incomparable experience of living and working in space. And so I sort of just needed to trust that many, many people are working really, really hard to make it as safe as possible and to help NASA carry out its mission. So let's dig into the beginning of your journey. I know so many kids. My son actually walked in earlier today and was like, mom, we were talking about outer space in school, (laughs) right? Like he wants to be an astronaut and he's seven. That might change. It might change. Did you also want to be an astronaut when you were little? Well, you got to think about the time that I was growing up. So I was 11 when the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon. So I was kind of growing up in the uh, Apollo period. and, and, And of course, everybody was following along and watching. But there weren't any women astronauts at the time. And so I don't think I had the imagination Mm. to really picture myself doing something like that when you just didn't see women doing that. So for me, it actually came quite a bit later. In fact, when I went to college, I wasn't even headed down the science and engineering track, even though I had always done really well at math and really liked math. I didn't know any scientists or engineers, Mm. And you hardly ever heard about any women who were scientists or engineers. Right. You know, maybe Marie Curie was probably the only one I can really remember studying about in school. And if you have to win two Nobel Prizes in two different fields to be mentioned as a woman, that's a pretty high bar. Yeah, the bar is pretty high. (laughs) I changed my major several times. But math is what finally got me interested in looking at what are the areas and the subjects that really use the math that I've been studying. So at one point, I think about a year and a half or so into college, I thought, well, I should go off and try to learn a little bit more about these fields that I don't know anything about. So I went to talk to two different professors. One was in the electrical engineering department, and uh, he was clearly not at all interested in having me in his department. 
He was like, Fine. well, we did have a woman come through here once, but it's a real difficult course to study, and I just don't know that you'd be interested, which was, of course, ironic because I was trying to find out if I would be interested. Fortunately, I got a much different reception from the physics professor that I went and talked to, and he said he was glad to hear I was interested in physics. He told me about various different kinds of careers and fields that people could have if they majored in physics. So that was important. I guess. After that conversation, it's maybe not too surprising that I thought I'd give physics a try. And I did end up majoring in physics, minoring in math. And it was in my first year in graduate school that the space shuttle flew for the first time. And then two years later, Sally Ride flew, a huge milestone, first American woman in space. And that's really when it came to my brain. Not only was Sally a woman, but she had majored in physics like me. She had gone to Stanford, which is where I was currently at graduate school and in the middle of getting my PhD. And I think I needed to see those things in common for me to really think about, well, maybe this is something I actually could do. And that's when I got really excited about it. So you mentioned the conversation with the electrical engineering professor as an initial barrier to entry. Did you face any other challenges when you decided to enter such a male-dominated field? Well, I would say just in general, being a woman in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, as well as having a Hispanic background. So two groups that are very underrepresented in those yeah. fields. I would say before I ever got to NASA, I certainly experienced some discouragement. When I was at Stanford, I got a lot of encouragement in general. But also there were examples of times when it was clear that there was still discrimination. To enter into the PhD program in the electrical engineering department, there's a test. And it's 10 one-on-one sessions with a student and a professor. And a week or two before I was going to take that test, one of my friends, another grad student, heard one of the professors in the department telling another one, well, I've never passed a woman on this test, and I never will, because they just don't belong in our department. I just remember thinking, well, I hope I don't get that professor as one of my 10, and, and I wonder how many others think that way. And so just the design of how that test is an ex- is an example of a bad process, which you want to have some kind of process that mitigates bias, whether it's conscious like his was or unconscious, which I think is much more typical. So I think those are the things that I did experience on and off. And a lot of times probably didn't even know about, right? But fortunately, as I said, I always also had people who were encouraging me, and that made a huge difference. And you mentioned you saw Sally Ride as the first woman to enter space, but how did it feel to be the first Latina to go to space? Was that something you were excited about and thinking about, or did that not factor in? Because it's a huge deal. (laughs) Let me talk first kind of internal to NASA and then maybe external, because I think they're a little bit different. When I got assigned to my first crew, of course, I knew I would be the first Latina in space. But honestly, the other members of my crew and the other people in the astronaut office and everybody preparing for the mission, I don't think it really made any difference, right? They just wanted to make sure I could do the job. And we trained together for a year. So we got to know each other as people. It wasn't like a label or anything like that. And so I don't see that it made a lot of difference in that sense. 
I have to say, I clearly benefited from women already being in the astronaut corps for 12 years at the time that I was selected. And of course, they'd shown they could do the job. Now, external to NASA, I think, really think that all the aspects of being a first were to the positive. I didn't feel like it really added pressure because I already felt a whole bunch of pressure, right? I can imagine. As a rookie astronaut, you know, you just, you want to make sure you you concentrate and you do everything right. And I had a couple of jobs that were pretty high profile. I was using the robotic arm to deploy a science satellite into space. And then two days later, we came back and rendezvoused with it. And I needed to use the arm to grab it and then berth it back into the payload bay. And so that to me was just one of those activities that I trained a lot for and was quite highly visible. And so there was already a lot of pressure to do it right. And I I don't know that being the first Latina really added to that. But after the mission, of course, then I got lots of opportunities to speak at schools and most with a high Hispanic enrollment Mm -hmm. because they, in general, didn't have those role models in the STEM fields. And they wanted a chance to show their students, hey, you can dream big. There's all kinds of things that you can do. And I've been doing outreach ever since, almost 30 years now, students and adults, but obviously a focus on women and girls and the Latinx community and just in general groups that are underrepresented in STEM. Well, I think a lot of our listeners fit into the category of being the first or the only in some way. So I'm sure you get this question often, but what advice would you give to people who are dealing with that pressure that comes with being the first or the only person that looks like them? In many cases, other people may have a much tougher time being a first just because there's a certain amount of skepticism, right? You're just never given the benefit of the doubt like somebody who's part of the majority culture, right? Yes, you always have to be proving yourself to get to that next level. You have to keep proving yourself, right? Over and over and over. So I would say, first of all, find your supporters. And these are the people who know you. Know you can bring the attributes that really matter to success. Hard work, perseverance, intelligence, the willingness and ability to learn and ask questions. I mean, those are the attributes that I think bring success. And then you have to really not listen to people who don't know you. And just because of their own implicit biases, they don't see you in certain roles. They don't expect you to succeed. I tried to tell myself, okay, the only person you can disappoint is yourself. And that will only happen if you didn't try your hardest. That's really all that you can do is work at it and try your hardest. And you have to not put on that extra pressure of all these other people that you feel you might disappoint. Leave the naysayers in the dust. (laughs) Yes. So you climbed your way up the ladder at NASA as the director of the Johnson Space Center, where you spearheaded innovation and oversaw so many firsts. So can you talk to us about some of these projects and what it was like to drive speed and innovation in an organization that I imagine has a lot of red tape? So I became the director of Johnson Space Center essentially at the beginning of 2013. And just to put in context what was going on at that time, obviously a lot of new entrants were starting to enter into human spaceflight. And also that year, NASA had the lowest budget in terms of buying power that it had had in 50 years. So those two things, I would say, 
really helped me make the case for change. First to the senior leaders at the center as we talked about what we really needed to focus on. And then, of course, to the center as a whole. So we had to understand, okay, what partners do we want to partner with? What new technology? How should we be changing our processes? I really wanted people to focus on how do we make future missions happen? Not only by figuring out the exciting technical and operational challenges, which I knew my team was up to, but that fits a budget that both the administration and Congress are willing to provide. That leads to smart decisions about roles for our partners. So that would be commercial partners and international partners. That makes the best use of every person we have. And of course, that gets to uh, diversity and inclusion, and that engages the public. So I did start up a change initiative. We called it JSC 2.0. It doesn't mean throwing out everything that brought you success in 1.0, right? It's about bringing along especially your values and your experience, but also understanding that you have to involve in change. And our goal, simply to advance human spaceflight by being lean, agile, and adaptive to change. So there were a lot of different initiatives that I took as part of that. And I say I, but of course, it's a team of people. And I would say I was lucky my senior leaders at the center were on board with this. Of course, it's always a little bit easier to look at one of the other organizations on the center and say, hey, I have some ideas of how they could change. A little harder to look at your own organization. Yeah. But I really challenged all of the leaders to come up with how can you re-envision how you provide the goods and services that your own organization provides. So we're talking about re-envisioning certain processes and this big Johnson Space Center 2.0 initiative. Tell me about how this shifted how JSC approached risks and innovation. We need to take risks when we innovate, but you're also operating under a lot of pressure. One of the things, talked a little bit about sort of the red tape and the bureaucracy, and that was clearly something that we had to address. And a lot of people know Johnson Space Center through the mantra from Apollo 13 of failure is not an option. And really, we did live that in our everyday lives, thinking about that and having that in our minds. But what we had done was, I think, take it too far to an extreme. That is absolutely important when people's lives are on the line or maybe making sure that a spacecraft itself survives. And we had just finished assembling the International Space Station, so we wanted to make sure it would be able to support activities for many, many years. But when you think about innovation and innovators, their mantra is more fail early, fail often. So I was like, so how do we combine that with our failure is not an option, you know, mindset. And so we really had to be very deliberate about saying, in some cases, it's okay to fail early and fail often, as long as it's not something that is directly affecting the health of the astronauts or the spacecraft. So some of the things that we were doing, we, of course, were trying to make as best use of the International Space Station as possible. And part of what we wanted to do was try out new technologies that we would need for future exploration, either of the moon and or Mars. But any piece of hardware that was destined for space, there was this whole set of procedures that it went into as soon as you called it class one hardware, which meant it's going to space. So it was tracked every minute. You knew exactly what environment it was in. You had to sign in and sign out whenever it was moved from one place to another. Detailed drawings, anytime anything was changed. 
But if you were trying to test out, maybe we had a new water quality analyzer and we figured we'd have to iterate two or three different times to get something that would be appropriate for a long-term journey. But we were putting so much process on it that it was taking too long. It was costing too much money. So we came up with a whole new class of hardware, which we called class 1E. E was for experimental because we needed to let people know at the center, hey, it's okay to use these streamlined procedures where we're not taking the same kind of precautions. And the reason it's okay is because we'll have the chance to iterate and send up version two or version three. We need to use the International Space Station like a laboratory. And uh, so we picked some projects that we really wanted to get into space, but which weren't currently destined for that because they didn't have funding. And we had people use these new streamlined procedures and said, okay, we're going to get them into space within a year. And so it was a way of really just changing people's mindset about what it's okay to think of fail early and fail often, as opposed to other areas where we had to continue to do the failure is not an option mindset. It sounds like it was a cultural shift that resulted in some really good operational outcomes. Well, that's exactly what we were shooting for. And we wanted to make sure that people at the center knew there were benefits to them. So if we could get more of what people were developing into space, our engineers would be so happy. And all of our folks, operations folks would say, oh, now we have tested a technology. We know that we can use it. So there were absolute benefits that people could see from that. And I think that helped them overcome the nervousness of oh, what if I send this piece of hardware into space and it doesn't work? Well, will I never get to work on another piece again because I'm associated with something that didn't work the first time. So it, it definitely was a culture shift. Right. Getting people to shift their thinking around risk is always a challenge, I think. And it's really an important task for board members, as you well know from your extensive board service. I know you've served on a ton of boards, but especially for our listeners who are trying to break into the boardroom, I'd love to hear about how you joined your first board. So I actually took a three-day women director development program that the Kellogg School of Management offers at Northwestern. And that was really helpful because I didn't really know about this space at all, right? I didn't work in industry. I worked in government. And so we didn't have boards like that. And that gave me a, a really good introduction. The first board, I well, I was on the Stanford Board of Trustees well before that. And essentially got through that because I had served on the College of Engineering Advisory Board. And, you know, I was one of their graduates and pretty high profile given what I had done at NASA. But my first sort of other board was the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and initially the Houston branch because they have three branches that support the Dallas board. And what the branches try to do is get people on their board who are representative of the different industries in their areas. And the Houston Bank had actually never had anybody from aerospace, even though Johnson Space Center and many of the contractors that support it are, of course, a big part or have a lot of visibility in Houston. So they asked me to join their board. And so it was really interesting getting to meet people who were CEOs of companies in you know, the energy industry or the chemical industry, and of course, in banking as well, and, and learn more about that. And then it turned out one of the other people on the board was 
on a public company board in Houston, and in fact was on the nominating and governance committee. And so, as so often happens, you know, it's kind of a networking. And so he approached me at one point and asked me if I might be interested in serving on a public company board. And so followed up, and that was my first board. And now, let's see, I guess I'm seven years in, and and now I'm the chair of the compensation committee on that board. That's amazing. I would imagine any company would jump at the chance to have you on their board. <laughs> so when you are thinking about which board you will join, what factors are you looking at to decide if it's right for you or not? Originally, I thought, well, maybe it's the type of industry, particularly since I have a STEM background and there maybe aren't a lot of women that have that kind of background. But what I realized was I want a place where I can both contribute from my own experience and also learn new things. And I felt what I brought was certainly leadership experience. And that means developing a strategic vision, accomplishing that mission in a, in a changing world, taking care of your people with, a, of course, an emphasis on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also risk management, which mm -hmm. of course is a big part of what we do at NASA. Well, I, I actually saw a survey that said 84% of global board members don't think their organizations have an effective risk management <laughs> approach. Yeah. So what do you think companies yeah. are getting wrong when it comes to risk? Well, part of what I've seen is they didn't have kind of a good structure. You know, at NASA, we generally use a risk matrix whenever we're looking at a particular program or a particular issue where you plot likelihood versus consequence. And of course, you have to sort of develop your own levels of consequences. And sometimes it's at NASA can be life and death, but it can right. also be schedule and budget, right, for our big complex missions. And I think in many cases, that's what companies are looking for. So you need to sort of score them, plot them, develop mitigation plans, implement those plans, and then, of course, continuously sort of monitor and assessing, because it's really important to review the underlying assumptions right. that might have changed. And I think sometimes that's where organizations go wrong, is they haven't gone back and reviewed those assumptions. I'm actually curious, what do you think some of the risks are, given this macroeconomic climate that, that you would be <laughs> advising your companies on right now, just to take a look at and to think through their own risk appetite? Well, you know, I think there are some risks that almost every company faces, and, and I, I think they realize this, so it's a question of exactly what they're doing to mitigate it. You know, one of those is just cybersecurity. Mm. That's a big risk for companies these days. Right now, the interest rate environment is changing a lot of assumptions about where businesses may be heading and what they might want to do in terms of mitigating how that might change the business climate in the future. I think taking care of your employees has become more and more important. And I think yes. companies realize, and I went into boards really thinking this just based on my own experience of leading Johnson Space Center is your employees really are your most valuable resource. Yes. And I know a lot of times companies will say that, but then their policies or the attention that they pay don't really show that they really believe that themselves. 
but it's expensive and difficult to bring in new people and train them and, and really have them fully engaged in your company. So you want to be taking care of your folks. And that means lots of things, looking out for their health and safety, providing training and development opportunities and making sure they're having those conversations with their supervisors about you know, where their career is headed. And the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think is just incredibly important. And it really comes down to people being able to fully engage in work. And at NASA, it's not just for bringing innovative ideas, but it's also for safety. You need people to speak up. You need them to ask good questions, provide data, and they will only do that if they feel respected and valued. And then in that way, they can bring not only their new ideas, but information that may be incredibly important in terms of safety. We certainly found that at NASA. So to me, Inclusion is just an absolute business imperative. I could not agree more. And I have to end on a few final questions. Okay. One of which I'm sure you get all the time. What is the best space movie? Not the most (laughs) realistic, but the best. So I think Apollo 13 really got it right in terms of this is actually how we work Mm -hmm. on the ground and in space to solve problems. And then a few years ago on the fiction side, but quite realistic fiction, is The Martian. Really? The thing that was so great about that was it really captured the character of how people in the space business think, whether you're an astronaut uh, stranded in space or whether you're on the ground trying to maintain communications. Also brought in just, I think, the humor aspect that's just so prevalent around Johnson Space Center and... It was such a big hit at Johnson Space Center that we actually brought the author and had him speak to our employees and and toured him around. I was expecting you to say alien. So (laughs) this was a real, this was a real surprise for me. All right, we're going to close on the two questions we ask all of our guests. The first is, if you could write a new rule for business that would help us all understand and manage risks, what would your new rule be? Well, first, I'm going to give you a little bit of context, which is one of the first pieces of advice I got as a rookie astronaut from veteran astronauts was, okay, don't worry. There's only two ways to mess up as an astronaut. Number one, failing to follow the procedures exactly as written. And number two, following the procedures exactly as written. (laughs) So it kind of speaks to you not only have to have a thorough understanding of the systems, but also the assumptions that went into all the procedures, because they're not going to be appropriate in every single situation. So I would say I would boil that down into a rule that says, have a thorough understanding of your business model and challenge your assumptions. I love that. All right. And then finally, what's the best piece of leadership advice? Or you can flip it, the worst piece of (laughs) advice as a leader you've ever received. Well, I just told you maybe one of the more confusing pieces of advice. So actually, one of the things that I talk about when I go around and talk to folks, and particularly young people, is I use a quote that's usually attributed to John Quincy Adams. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, or become more, you are a leader. And I think that really speak to not only a leader's responsibility to others, 
but it highlights that really anyone can be a leader through their actions, rather than leadership being dependent on a title or position. And that's not something that I realized when I was younger. It took me a long time to realize that. I run into so many young people who have started mentoring programs, just done all kinds of things that I admire so much because they've already taken leadership to heart. Thank you so much. You are incredibly inspiring. And I know you have buildings named after you and schools named after you. And we were just really honored for you to chat with us today. So thank thank you you so much. Thank you for all of your service. It was a pleasure. That was the incomparable Dr. Ellen Ochoa. So what did you think, Carolyn? Because I thought she was very down to earth. (laughs) Actually, I found her to be out of this world. (laughs) Oh my God. We just had to drop some bad space funds before we pull out the risk matrix and get back to business. (laughs) Okay. That was actually really terrible. But, But back to the actual topic, risk mitigation is hard work. You can't just do one big deep dive into threats and weaknesses and then call it a day. And you can't just pass all this stuff off to your legal team either. Right, because approaches like that might help you avoid some potential pitfalls, but not all of them. And they definitely won't allow you to spot the right opportunities to pursue. Yeah, for that, you need to constantly revisit and challenge your underlying assumptions about your business and the external environment. No one can do that for you. But there's a lot of people that can do it with you. I love loved her point about equity and inclusion driving not just innovation, but also better risk management. So true. You need a diversity of perspectives to really understand all the threats on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, you want your people to feel that their voices are valued so that they can speak up about those threats too. And know when to follow the rule book and when to like a rookie astronaut. I want to be a rookie astronaut. Is it too late? (laughs) I I think so. I'm going to be the bearer of bad news. I think you are no longer eligible. Plus, you're missing a pretty key component, like an engineering degree. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds like a risk to my time, to my joy, and more importantly, a risk to my ego. Well, not to mention the risk to all of mankind if you were driving a rocket. (laughs) I mean, wait, do you drive rockets? What do you do? I don't know. Yeah, vroom, vroom. (laughs) Well, anyway, maybe not a risk to pursue right now, but who knows? Maybe you're underlying assumptions will change. Maybe your underlying assumptions will change because you probably thought I was done when I dropped just one space pun, right? Oh God. (laughs) Because this is the last episode of season three. The eagle has landed and I'm so glad we could go out with a big bang. You got to stop. It's been one small step for woman. (laughs) One giant leap for womankind. Uh, Houston, I think we've got a problem. (laughs) Commander Kaplan has gone AWOL. But our mission is not complete. Oh my God, stop. We will go to season four, season five, and beyond. Subscribe now so you never miss a launch. Okay. We're going to wrap this up now. So that's all for this episode and season of the new rules of business by Chief. And don't miss out on the vast universe of Chief content. You can find a galaxy of episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on Planet LinkedIn. This is getting really bad, Lids. Because if you're really a star and you're thinking about becoming a (laughs) member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. All right, I'll take my turn then. 
As a member, you will be connected with the most powerful network of executive women in the universe. <laughs> I did. I already used that universe joke. Do better. I'm seriously ready to shoot you into outer space. Let's, <laughs> so let's roll to the credits already. Five, <laughs> oh, four, God. three, two. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Madison Lusby, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. This is ground control to Major Carolyn. <laughs> We're shooting into space. <laughs> Can somebody cut her off? <laughs> Here am I. Command control, please stop her. <laughs> if you're still listening to this podcast, seriously, go to chief.com. <laughs> At this point, you've committed to it. Go to chief.com.